What's up? What's up? It is time for episode 11 of Believe in Queens. We've got a ton to get to today. I'm Joe Serralo, joined as always by Tyler Ward, that's Wardy NYM, and of course, Anthony Recker, our newest addition to the show. We're going to get to Jake DeGrom's first outing in over 390 days. Of course, today was the MLB trade deadline. We'll dive into what the Mets did or didn't do and some major moves across the rest of the league. And of course, a big five-game set coming up with the Atlanta Braves. We're going to get to it all, but first, this episode of Believe in Queens, like every episode, is brought to you by our friends and partners at BetOnline. Head over to BetOnline.ag. You can get your latest lines, odds, and developments in the world of sports. Bet on baseball, NFL futures, MLB futures, guys, with the trade deadline passing. You know that those lines changed. If you want to get in on the Padres, the Mets, the Dodgers, go place those bets. And for your 50% welcome bonus, use the code BELIEVE. 50. That's B-L-E-A-V-5-0 for your 50% one-time welcome bonus and let the games begin. Gentlemen, let's let the show begin. Jacob deGrom is back. We're going to get to the deadline. Obviously, that might not be as exciting news for us as uh, we thought it would be. And of course, as Jake's return is. So Anthony, we're going to start it with you, man. What did you see from Jake in his five innings tonight? What did you love? No, he looked great. Uh, I thought he looked like Jake. Honestly, uh, the fastball, the velocity was there. Uh, hit 102 in the first inning. Slider looked good. Uh, he was locating very well early on. Got a little bit shakier as the game went on, but that's to be expected. The guy hasn't really pitched that much in the last year. So uh, outside of that, I thought he was great. Uh, the first hit, right? Uh, Kyber Ruiz, that that single almost doubled down the line. Marte made a nice throw at second base. That was just bad pitch calling, in my opinion. So, um, you know, look, he was phenomenal. He, he was striking guys out. He was looking... Like the DeGrom we've come to know and love, uh, like I said, velocity was there. I, pitch count, I, I thought he could have gone out there for the sixth. Wish he would have. Um, but, I mean, there's nothing you can say about that outing that's a negative, in my opinion. Um, it was just good to see him out there. Good to see him go five. And then, you know, obviously be healthy at the end of it, come off the field, and look like he's ready to make another start in hopefully five days. Tyler, what about you, man? Yeah, I think Rec hit the nail on the head for just the fact that a couple pitches in, he's already hitting 102. And it's funny because a lot of times when I interact with Mets fans, they're saying, Jake, you need to pump it back a little bit. We're worried that you're going to get hurt again. But I think most people should understand that for Jake, he's not pressing. This is just natural for him. He's going to consistently hit top 99, 100 without even really, yes, he's meaning to, but it's not like he's going full force right there. Like that's just a normal part of his rhythm because of how phenomenal his arsenal is. And again, how dominant he has been as a pitcher. So if you look at a year and a half ago, uh, right around there, the last time that Jake pitched on the mound for the Mets in a regular season game, if you would have told me that he wasn't injured throughout this entire time, I would have believed you because he looked basically the exact same. And so did the Mets offense, unfortunately, but we're not going to harp on that too much, right? I mean, it just, it was poetic. I got to say for a lot of things for doom and gloom, my Mets fans on social media, I completely understood why they weren't satisfied. But there was one thing, one positive to truly take away from tonight at the time of recording this, that being DeGrom's start, it is Jacob DeGrom. I mean, it felt surreal to finally see him back on the mound, doing his thing, shoving six Ks over five. Yes, he gave up that run, but he didn't care. And I love the fact that when Jake got in the dugout, he had no problem when Buck said, you know, we're going to end you at five. He's smiling, gave a hug to Nito. He's happy to be back in this Mets rotation, and so am I as a fan. And you know what? Let me be honest. As I mentioned last episode, the Burry Van Wagon in a way, the best acquisition can be in house. I truly believe that that is the case here with Jacob DeGrom and the Mets are going to go as far as Jake and Max can take them. So let's let's get on for this ride and see where it goes. 
Yeah, good thing for Buck's sake. Jake's a little more mellow than Scherzer. I think if he ever tried to pull Scherzer <laughs> after five innings and 59 pitches, Max would probably start throwing hands in the dugout. Um, you know, Rick, you mentioned he looked phenomenal, right? And the fourth inning, you said it didn't really worry you, didn't phase you. I feel the same way. To me, that was just a case of the adrenaline wearing off a bit. I mean, you saw him pumping 102 in the first. That's unlike Jake. I mean, all the incredible things he's done, 102 is something that we haven't seen yet. So I think that was just adrenaline his first time through the lineup. And then in the fourth, you know, he settled down a bit, came back down to earth, but still had incredible stuff. The slider for me was really the most impressive thing. 93, 94 consistently, that sharp razor blade bite. I mean, he threw 14 of them. He had seven swings and misses. It's like that pitch is just, it's like a video game. It's unfair. Um, but I do want to ask you from a psychological perspective, because at the end of the day, Jake looked great. The offense didn't. You know, first start in 390 days. Are the guys psyching themselves out? Is it possible after, you know, all those years of not giving him run support that he comes back and all of a sudden this lineup that's been amazing, even when they fall behind, they answer immediately. All of a sudden they looked anemic tonight against no-namers that the Nationals were running out there. Do you think that's a psychological thing? I hope not. Um, I don't know if there's, uh, you know, some kind of a button that they push where they just all relax and they don't really – go into the game with intensity when Jake's on the mound, like, ah, oh, we got our guy out there. We only got to score a run or two. We're good. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, it was very interesting tonight. Uh, you had a really young kid in, in Abbott out there for the Nationals. I thought that uh, the Mets were going to be able to, to take advantage of that. And sometimes, look, when you're a lineup, you're in the big leagues, and you get a, a kid, a young kid, you don't have a lot of film on him. You don't know much about him. Sometimes you just don't know what to expect, especially in today's day and age where – uh, you have so much information for these games against guys who have been in the league for longer than that, that when you go into a game without much, without much video, without much information, it, it feels a little bit weird. It feels uh, a little bit odd and you just aren't quite locked in the same. So there's definitely ways to say that, you know, maybe some of it is due to that. Uh, but yeah, there, there certain, certainly seem to be some kind of a letdown. But as we were talking about it before we came on, uh, you know, this team, for whatever reason, uh, on the road, and, and I kind of mentioned what I thought it might be, but uh, that second day uh, on the road, it just seems to be second game. It just seems to be a tough one for them. For me, when I work out, when I used to play, it was always the second day after travel, always the second day after a workout. And it seems like a lot of this team follows a very similar recovery plan. And uh, they just they just struggle that day. And look, it is what it is. No big deal. Um, if this becomes another theme over the next month or two, then we'll talk about it. But for right now, I'm just going to chalk it up to it's just one of those nights. But Jake went out there, did his thing, and uh, you know, got to be happy about that. And last thing on Jake, Anthony, I'll start with you on this, but I, I want both of your opinions here. You know, this is a guy who in his last rehab start in AAA threw 67 pitches. Tonight, we were expecting 75 to 80, only went five up downs, five innings, 59 pitches. His next game is higher stakes than this one. Sunday against Spencer Strider, who also had an amazing outing for Atlanta tonight. He'll be capping off a five-game set with the Braves that is going to be really important when it comes to the divisional race throughout the last two months of the year. What do you think the leash is for Jake, his next outing? Uh, it'll be six up-downs, it'll be six innings, and it'll be 75 to 80 pitches. Uh, I know they said that that could be tonight. Um, to be honest with you, I was expecting him to go back out there because – I believe in his rehab appearance, he had gone back out for the fifth inning, just hadn't quite finished the fifth inning yet. Um, so I expected him to kind of go out and start the sixth inning just to get that up down, even if it was just one out, just go out there, a couple more pitches. 
But I think they just really wanted to take it easy knowing that he really did have the adrenaline going early in this game. And just to be safe on that side of, okay, a lot of wear and tear in a game like this, even though it wasn't a high stress moments and a lot of big pitches might be one of those times where, okay, he's going out there. He's unintentionally going probably a little bit harder than he might normally do, or at least the adrenaline spike is there. And so let's just pull back on him a little bit. Let him go five. He looked great, looked sharp, obviously started to get a little bit tired there at the end. And we saw last year when he would get a little bit tired, his mechanics would falter just a tick. And then that's when he would end up after the game when you didn't even know something was wrong, say, oh, I felt something here and we'd get the bad news. So it might have just been very precautionary in that sense and just making sure that they've got him for the long haul. I will say in terms of mechanics, and this is maybe the best thing I saw today, and it's something I love to look at with Jake, his release point, that chart came out right after the game. It was identical. Every yep. pitch didn't matter the pitch type. If anything, maybe the curveball was a half inch above the rest of his his pitches, but that's to be expected, right? I mean, yep. his release point was spot on, so his mechanics were perfect tonight. Tyler, what do you think? Do you agree with Anthony? Six up, down, 75 to 80, or do you think it's a high-stakes game? Maybe try to stretch him as, as long as you can. See, I love that Rex said how naturally it's going to be six innings around 75 pitches because what that means is the expectation that Jake is going to have no problem being at that <laughs> pitch count by six, right? He's not going to get worked at all. And even against these Braves, I still love the chances for Jake to come out and go guns a-blazing on these Braves because we know how home run happy they are. We know how swing and miss they are. I really think that Jake is going to find himself again in a situation like Rex said, upwards of six innings, 75 to 80 pitches. I think he's going to get there, honestly. Of course, I'm knocking on wood. I'm not trying to jinx anything. But not only that, I'm not just looking at Jake in this game, uh, potentially a big game here for the Mets in game five of a five-game matchup, as if that always happens, right? But also, what's going to happen after Jake in this one, assuming he goes between five and six innings? Because you have that big doubleheader on Saturday. You're going to see guys like a David Pierce and Trevor Williams potentially involved. What type of relievers are the Mets going to have by time that they get to Jake here on Sunday is going to be very interesting for them with the assumption that, again, Jake can handle six without a prom upwards of 80 pitches on that count. But I also love that you mentioned the release point. That's what Jake has been known for, and that's why he has been, again, among the best in all of MLB. He truly has been in a class of his own when he's on his game and all goes in hand with that release point. The fact that, again, you can have that one-on-one. 102 fastball and then the 94 95 hard cut slider with the same exact release point again he's just an anomaly of a pitcher it, it felt surreal he feels like a video game let's not forget what he was doing early last year up until his ailments from swinging the bat and then unfortunately his big injury that had him out for the remainder of last season he was doing stuff bob gibson asked he was breaking records left and right who knows what would have happened for him if he stayed healthy so Jake, I mean, he's locked in already, and I think that this matchup for the Braves could actually be really favorable for him just knowing how swing and miss of a team that they are. Yeah, not only Bob Gibson-esque, he was doing stuff Tyler Bob Gibson hadn't done. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, now, given it was a half a season compared to Gibson's full 68 campaign, but don't forget what they did after that year. They lowered the pitcher's mound because of how yeah. dominant Gibson was. <laughs> I mean, DeGrom was doing that. He had a 108 ERA, more incredibly, a .55 win. I mean, you know, Anthony, I know you can appreciate that, you know, half a guy getting on base per inning. I mean, the best first half whip, and I believe, you know, the last 120 years or whatever, the uh, the next best first half whip, you have to look at Clayton Kershaw, it was like 0.73. So you're talking like a 0.2 difference. That, that's a big difference when you're looking at the numbers DeGrom was putting up last year. Strikeout wise, he had 150 and a half a season. I mean, he was on pace for a 300K season. It was just what he was doing was absolutely insane. Look, he looked great tonight. 
And at the end of the day, if the Mets win tomorrow or, you know, as you're watching or listening to this in a couple hours with Bassett on the bump, I think we all would have signed up for a five and one road trip, right? Going into this. So I'll take it. DeGrom looked great. Going to try to move on from this game and just focus on his next start against the Braves. What's up, Tyler? Oh, I just want to mention too that, yeah, I'll be at that game with Seabass on the bump. So naturally, if the Mets lose, you can blame this guy, the short schmuck walking around with the same hat on. <laughs> but one more thing I want to add about Jake as well, and I want to ask you this, Rec, is during your time in the Mets organization and, you know, building that relationship with DeGrom, when was, in your opinion, the first time that you noticed that Jake had something special? Was it from the jump as first as you met him? Or was this something that, again, over time, because the natural thing is that years ago when Jake had his worst start of his career, Terry Collins put his arm around his shoulder, and then everything changed. So for you, Rec, having that experience with him, in your opinion, when, when did you kind of notice that Jake was really starting to be more in a class of his own and that he was going to potentially become someone that he is now today? Well, I can tell you that when I first caught him, it was AAA 2013. I went down for, I don't know, eight, nine, ten days that year. I don't even remember how long, but I was down in AAA. I got to catch Jake, and I remember talking to Frank Viola before the game, um, and he said, hey, this kid's pretty good. He knows how to spot up. Uh, you know, you'll you'll feel pretty good back there with him because I had been working with big leaguers for for going on two plus years at that point and uh, going down to AAA, sometimes you can get some very erratic guys and, and guys that kind of lose their stuff, especially in the PCL tough league to pitch in. Jake showed tremendous poise, uh, hit his spots. I uh, loved his arsenal. And I actually called that one of my, my best friends growing up, uh, my best friend growing up, my best man at my wedding. Uh, he's a big Mets fan, been, been a Mets fan his entire life. Love that. Uh, I remember talking to him not long after that start. I said, I know you've heard about Wheeler, Syndergaard, Harvey. Uh, all those guys were names at the time. I said DeGrom might be the best of all of them. And that was literally first impression. I said, this kid's really, really good. And then sure enough, you know, he got up to the big leagues in 14 um, and was just phenomenal, like right out of the gate. And you you could see it, you know, in 14 for sure. After a couple of starts, it was like, okay, this kid's not just pretty good. He's really good. And he he's got a shot to be special. Um, I, I never would have envisioned the pitcher he's become now with 102, 94 mile an hour sliders and the change up and uh, a 0.55 whip. I mean, that's that's crazy. I never would have envisioned that. But uh, you could see him being, uh, you know, the best of that crop and certainly a Cy Young contending type of a pitcher right out of the gate. And it, it really just goes to prove uh, it wasn't just the stuff. It was also his mentality and his poise. And when you put it all together with the accomplishment and what he's gotten now physically what he is now physically it just becomes uh basically an extra extraordinary pitcher i just got goosebumps from from that story <laughs> i mean talking about him being better than noah and wheeler even back then no one was mm -hmm. talking about that but yeah the velo is a little different but i mean you know you're still looking at the same jake the same competitor the same guy who you know expects the he expects more out of himself than any coach or anyone else expects out of him and, and that's you know ultimately it's usually what it takes when you're the best at something. That's what guys like Tom Brady have in them. And, you know, Jake obviously cut from the same cloth. Let's get into the trade deadline because Jake looks great. And that's definitely the bright spot today. But the Mets, you know, we were kind of waiting the past five days, past week for that big move. And ultimately it never came. So, you know, Anthony, what, what are your thoughts on what the Mets did do? Of course, you know, sending JD to San Fran for Darren Ruff getting a reliever and Michael Givens from the Cubs. I think I'm a little higher on that move than you might be. So what are your thoughts on how the deadline played out? Yeah, well, I'll start with Michael Givens. Uh, you know, look, 
he's obviously had a very good year this year. And I think he's one of those guys who has the ability to strike people out. He has the ability to, um, you know, come in, in in some decent pressure situations and do a good job. But at the same time, he's always had a high walk rate and, and it's no different this year. And that scares me from a reliever standpoint of a guy who could potentially come in in high leverage situations. Um, you know, now we talked about the, the potential for Tyler McGill. He will be in the bullpen later this year. Uh, David Peterson at the end of the year in the playoffs, probably a bullpen piece. Uh, you know, it, Trevor May coming back tomorrow. He'll be back uh, actually today, I should say. Uh, he'll be back, uh, you know, on the roster. So all those things make a lot of sense in that maybe he won't have too many uh, high leverage situations. But if anything goes wrong or any of the, those guys don't perform the way they expect them to, this could be a guy in high leverage situations. And, and I don't like that for my, my relievers. Uh, you know, if they're the type of guys who I got to worry about him putting some guys on and then eventually giving up a, a bomb. Uh, so that's a tough one for me. And it's also, you know, look, his secondary pitch is basically his changeup. His changeup is kind of his, his go-to secondary. And when you have a guy like that, that's, that's a contact pitch a lot of the time. So, that's a tough one for me. Um, you know, I, I like I like his stuff. I like his makeup. I think he could be good, but I'm not going to trust him in, in big spots until I see it consistently for a while, at least that he's not going to walk the yard. Now, Darren Ruff, I know this guy. I know him really well. Uh, I, in fact, our kids went to the same preschool in uh, in Arizona, so I got wow. to talk to him then. That was when he was playing over in, in Asia. And, I mean, it's just an awesome guy, awesome individual. I got to play against him, of course, when he was a Philly. Um, so I got to know him a little bit then. And just a really good, just good human being. Love the fact that he has had such success that he has had in the last few years with the Giants. Um, love that he brings the ability to absolutely mash left-handers. He's done it his entire career. He's doing it again this year. Um, and it's really, it's really impressive that he's had such consistency against left-handed pitching. Um, he mashed righties last year too. He's just not mashing them to the same extent that he is uh, that he was last year that this year. But uh, all that said, look, it's a really nice piece alongside Daniel Vogelbach. It, the tough part is going to be keeping them both fresh because realistically, they are both DHs. I don't see either of them playing in the field. Tyler Naquin is your fourth outfielder. If you need another outfielder, I'd rather put Jeff McNeil out there than Darren Ruff, and it's nothing against Darren, but just not a great, you know, he's not a very athletic human being. He's a bigger <laughs> guy, much like Vogie. So they've got they basically traded for two guys as one DH who, uh, you know, at least what they've shown this year and over their career, really. I mean, it's like a 900 OPS DH. That is a tremendous DH asset to have in your lineup every day. Uh, that said, it does take up two roster spots and they are DHs. So from that perspective, it's a little bit confusing. Now, they do have the flexibility elsewhere, and I think that's what's key with guys like Luis Guillorme, Jeff McNeil, Eduardo Escobar, uh, Tyler Naquin as a fourth outfielder. They do have the flexibility to do that right now, so uh, we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, uh, it, it is lacking in some sense that I, I was expecting a little bit more uh, out of this team in the trade deadline. Yeah, and that's the biggest concern for me. You know, what you just mentioned is that we have two DHs. On the team. So it's like when you look at defensive versatility, I mean, luckily, Naquin can play all three outfield spots. It's not like he's just a corner guy. And Guillaume can play second, third, and short. And you can always bump McNeil to the outfield if need be. But, you know, there's still, you have two defensive bench players in Naquin and Guillaume. And that's it. Obviously, mm -hmm. Vogelback and Ruff can play first in a pinch if you need it. But yeah, that's the part that I don't love. Tyler, I know that you were live on Wardy NYM's YouTube page all day streaming. Give me your 
raw reaction to everything that happened today? Uh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> First and foremost, it was ridiculous. I mean, look, as a diehard Mets fan and a content creator, one of the biggest things that I hone in on and a lot of people know me for is just covering all the latest news and rumors that happens with the club. If it's reported, I'm there. I'm discussing it. So today was a big day. Naturally, I went almost like five hours live streaming, discussing with we had over 30,000 viewers total. It was insane. I enjoyed everyone so much that chimed in for Mets fans. But I expected the Mets to do more. And I think every Mets fan and the mother expected the exact same thing because you bring in Darren Ruff, who I really, really like, first of all. I don't think that there's much more that needs to be harped on there. He's a lefty killer. I had Mets fans yelling at me right away, but Tyler, he has a 228 average. I'm telling you, the same fans that were crying about Vogelback, Joe, are the same fans that are are very happy with Vogelback to a certain degree now with what he's done because, again, you can't look at them with their overall base numbers. You have to look at them and how they're going to be utilized. Vogelback is not going to see a lick against lefties. That's fine because he can't hit a lick against lefties. Race against righties. Now you get in rough, the exact same situation. The one thing that the Mets haven't had all year is a guy that can consistently rake against lefties. Now you have had Brandon Nimmo McNeil. Surprisingly enough, lefty on lefty, they do pretty well against. They're among the better hitters in the Mets lineup. Pete Alonzo, though, Alonzo, you would think would be more confident than what he has been this year against lefties, but he has had his struggles. They went down and in on the slider, spamming it on him like a cheat code a lot, and he just hasn't figured it out on a consistent level yet. So to bring Ruff now in, again, a Vogelback 2.0 just on the other side of the plate, no defensive upside at all. I think if you guys remember when the Mets matched up against the Giants in San Fran earlier this year, Ruff like tumbled over and it found himself in the netting on the side, if I'm not mistaken. So I think that was a good example of why Darren should be, you know, just strictly a DH for now. But I really think it's a phenomenal pickup. I mean, he is in one of the top 10 players in all of baseball since the beginning of 2020 when he came back from overseas raking against southpaws. He has a 150 to 155 WRC plus against lefties, which means he's 50% or better than the average position player against southpaws. That's fantastic. Again, the Mets basically, what, what did they do, Billy Upper? He looked at Josh Bell and he said, if I can't land him, because we'll get into that move in a second with the big one with the Padres, let me combine the two and make my own. So I, I thought it was a very good move and sneaky move that um, Billy made. And then when you look at Michael Givens, for me personally, I like Givens quite a bit. Now, I am concerned about walk rate. That is always my biggest gripe. I think I said it in our previous podcast. That's just the biggest thing that concerns me naturally for a Mets team or their bullpen. What has been their biggest issue this year? If it's not the home run ball like you saw tonight and the Mets lost to the Nationals at the time recording this, it is quite literally just walking the bases. And if you get that aspect away for Givens, if Jeremy Hefner can work his magic, kind of similar to what he did with Adovino entering this year, then you have a good matchup because while Givens necessarily isn't looking the prettiest in high leverage situations, I will give him credit in the eighth inning so far this year. He's done really well. Opponent batting average 191, a 517 OPS, a 1.45 ERA. So he has been able to handle those setup role situations to a degree pretty, pretty solid. He's done well against lefties for the most part around just a 220 average, 750 OPS. Don't love that. Has done better against righties as well. Lower 200 average around 500 or so OPS. I think the Mets pickups were really, really strong. I have zero complaints on what Billy did here. But again, when you go into this deadline with constant rumors of the Mets showing a good amount of interest in Christian Vasquez and J.D. Martinez and Wilson Contreras and the likes of potentially David Robertson, Robertson ends up going in the least, but to the rival in the Phillies. And then you see everything else that transpires. It's like it's hard to grasp exactly how much we should critique critique Billy here because the Cubs did not sell at all. I think there would have been more rightful criticism here if the Cubs say sold elsewhere for Contreras and Martinez, same thing going elsewhere. So 
Naturally, I would have liked the Mets to add something a little bit there to the catching position because I do have my concerns from an offensive standpoint with McCann and Nito, what they've done so far. I think they'll hold their own, but there's no denying that that is the biggest hole in the Mets lineup offensively. And then it's that lefty reliever in the pen. Andrew Chafin, why didn't that happen? Billy Epler said earlier today at the time of recording this that the Mets were close to landing the southpaw. They couldn't make it happen, however. Prices were just not where they felt was warranted uh, giving up the type of prospect capital. So it's interesting. I definitely, I'm fully in agreement with Mets fans that they should naturally feel underwhelmed. These were good moves by the Mets. We just expected a little bit more. And if there's one benefit of the doubt to give them, if at all, you look at what the rest of the NLEs did. The Braves didn't do anything that was drastic like last year, for instance. The Phillies, yeah, they got Noah and uh, Robertson. We'll get into shortly. But I'm still not looking at the Phillies. I'm looking at them as a serious threat for the division leader here right now. And then other than the Padres, the Dodgers didn't do anything that wowed me other than getting Joey Gallo. So overall, I think the Mets kind of weigh not just what they had opportunity-wise, but also weighing what their opponents, what is going to be their biggest matchups this year in the NL down the stretch and come playoff time, which all cultivated to their decision-making. So I'm underwhelmed. I like their moves, but I really feel like they could have done more at minimum by landing, say, an Andrew Chafin or a similar Southpaw type. So, Joe, what's your opinions on these moves? Do you agree with us or, you know, are you on the completely different type of wavelength? Let me hear it. Yeah, man. I mean, look, you know, I, I like Michael Givens. I like that him and Buck have a good rapport and have good chemistry. You know, I think he he doesn't have blow you away wow stuff, but I think that he's just a good pitcher. And, you know, I, Anthony, I think the three of us were texting earlier today and I said something about how, uh, you know, in today's big leagues, there's a lot of throwers. There's not necessarily a lot of pitchers. And I think that Michael Givens is just a, a good, tough pitcher. Like I said, doesn't have the best stuff, but can hit his spots, can locate, and can work his way out of high leverage situations. So I like that move. But at the same time, it's like I look at what the Phillies gave up for David Robertson, and I'm like, we, we couldn't swing that? You know, I'm a little confused. Now, the prospect they gave up, I want to clear something up here. If you look, Tyler, you probably have the name. I don't know. Last name was Brown. Um, yeah, Ben Brown. Ben, ben Brown. Brown. Ben Brown. Yep. Thank you both. He was ranked the Phillies 26th best prospect coming into the year. Now, a lot of people look at that and say, what, the Mets couldn't top it? He currently is was ranked the Phillies' seventh best prospect coming into today. So a lot's changed as the years progressed. But still, it's like the Mets have pitchers in that 10 to 15 range. You're telling me that we couldn't send a Jose Buto or a Cal Ziegler? Now, maybe the Mets didn't want to, but I would have sent one of those guys with maybe Dom Smith to Chicago because – don't forget, at the end of the day, the Mets sent J.D. Davis uh, to San Fran in that package for Darren Ruff, but Dom Smith is still a Met, and there's no room for him on this roster. We already have two first basemen who, you know, two backup first basemen, I should say, in Vogie and Ruff, who are going to be DHs. We don't have room for a fourth first baseman on this roster, so Dom's probably going to spend the rest of the year in AAA. I don't see how his trade value, even though he's had a bad year, gets any better down with Syracuse than it already was. So it's kind of baffling to me that we couldn't put Dom and, you know, a pitcher ranked 10 to 20th in our system together for either a David Robertson or a Chafin or, you know, even as a last resort, a Mantiply, just because, uh, you know, I don't trust our current lefty bullpen situation. Uh, Peterson, you know, I think, like you mentioned, Rec, will be a viable bullpen option from the left side later in the year, but he's not there right now. And then Zapuki, who we also sent to San Francisco, you know, reports were saying he looked great in the bullpen down in the minors, that yeah. he was even touching 97 when he was only coming out for an inning. And uh, and just like that, he's gone. I don't think Philip Deal or Sam Clay are necessarily going to be, you know, drastic uh, upgrades from Joely Rodriguez. So, you know, I've got a lot of questions about the bullpen. Uh, Ruff, 
I like him. I like what he does against lefties. You know, I was wrong about Vogelback, so I'm not going to make the same mistake twice here. But <laughs> one thing I was right about, Tyler, I said this to you as soon as the deal happened, we should have traded Nagosik, not Holderman. <laughs> and uh, Nagosik, of course, he's the guy who was on the bump. Pirate, the Pirates, Pirates had their foot down. You know, I bel- yeah. Billy said best. They were determined to get Colin. Like, the Mets didn't want to give him up. I No Mets fan wanted to see him gone. I love Colin. Speaking of him, he actually just got called up by the Pirates today, as a matter of fact. So we'll see what he does at the big league level for them. But yeah, Billy didn't want to give him up. But thank goodness that at minimum, the Mets acquired one reliever because Billy emphasized as one of the biggest factors in parting ways with Colin was the plethora of options that they would have reliever-wise at the trade deadline. And it took them to their last five minutes or so to land a reliever. And while Givens is good, don't get me wrong, he definitely helps solidify the pen for what things are right now. It's still, again, everything about this just was underwhelming. This is the second straight year now under Steve Cohen where different circumstances. Last year, the Mets went out, overpaid, did a desperate move. They got a big name in Baez and Trevor Williams. However, they didn't do enough around that, and that ended up being their demise down the stretch along with their injuries and their offensive inconsistencies. This year, the Mets did not have the same pressure on them, completely aware of that. When you're roughly 30 games above 500, I don't understand how you can have the same pressure like you did last year by front office. So Steve took a step back more than what he did in his first year getting involved. Let Billy, let everyone else involved, Ben Zosmer, et cetera, do what they had to do. But you come out of this now, and you really just have to wonder down the stretch for the Mets, how is the bullpen going to pan out for one? Because you have Trevor May again returning today. You have David Pearson, Tyler McGill that I think have the utmost potential to thrive in the bullpen, but that's mm-hmm. still a question mark. Again, these are experiments now that the Mets have to lean towards down the stretch to see what it, what is going to work with them. So for me as a fan, I'm just a little taken back by the amount of question marks Billy up when the Mets were willing to handle and are really doing a safe bet on for their sake. When in reality, there were safe bets out there externally that would not have cost you an arm and a leg. Now, David Robertson is an interesting one, too. I don't I I look at the Cubs situation and you have to wonder how long did the Mets have this back and forth with the Cubs just waiting to see who would blink. And the Cubs looked like that they, you know, over overdid things with their hand because they didn't part with him or Hap, that being Contreras and Hap. And same thing with Boston to an extent. So I don't know exactly how much blame I can give when looking at the bigger picture of the players. But again, when you look at the pieces that one more reliever, I, I mean, B- Billy's saying that, you know, the Mets did not necessarily believe that was worth going after. Mm-hmm. You can never have enough pitching depth. So I would rightfully counter that and say, why not just add someone else? Even if you want to get a man supply that hasn't done as well as of late, I still think that that's more security than the current southpaws you have. I'm taking Joe Mansupply in every day of the week over Joel Rodriguez right now. I'm sorry. I mean, there's just, again, I can go on a rant for like an hour plus <laughs> about this, but that's just my initial raw reaction everything. The Mets bullpen is going to change, right? We're aware of that. I think Mets fans need to realize that too. When you have May, when you have Pearson, when you have Drew Smith, seeing what he's going to provide once he's back off the I.L., and, of course, Tyler McGill towards the end of August. Things are going to change up and shake up fast. Nagosik's out of here. Lopez is out of here. Tommy Hunter might be out of here, too. Joelli. A lot of things are going to change. Maybe give Adonis Medina a shot. I don't know. But enough of me ranting and, you know, rambling. Go back to you, Joe. Yeah, it's just what concerns me. And, Anthony, I want to ask you how much it concerns you is that we are banking on so many what-ifs now with the bullpen. It's, you know, Trevor May comes back from the IL. Will he be peak Trevor May? Will Seth Lugo pitch the way he's pitched for the better part of the last 10 days will the tyler mcgill david peterson bullpen experiment be successful for not just one but both so you know you're looking at four what ifs here how much of a concern is that to you that like tyler just said 
we didn't go out and get the proven guy. We're banking on guys who have tons of upside, but so far this year are unproven in the roles that we're expecting out of them. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing because I remember, you know, the offseason and thinking to myself, okay, they don't have to do everything in the offseason. Like, calm down, Mets fans. It's okay. We can make moves at the trade deadline. We can get better then if we need to because there are some what-ifs on this team already. We saw Jake obviously go down and and things seem to be headed in a bad direction. Well, they they write it. They were fine. They They overcame some of those injuries and they've played beautifully so far this year but they still had holes. And I expected the trade deadline to really fill some of those holes and not give you so many what-ifs, especially for a team that's been performing the way that this team has with the consistency that it has. Okay, let's fill some of those holes and just make sure that down the stretch and going into the playoffs, our consistency stays peak. We, we can continue to stay the same team we've been all year. Um, and I'm just not sure that they accomplished that. In fact, I, I know in, in my mind right now, they didn't, eliminate those what ifs if you know as you called them so realistically that's scary it's scary to think about that as as a fan watching the team okay but what if this stuff doesn't break our way what if we have another injury what if you know edwin diaz goes down or or some you know god forbid but you think Mm -hmm. about this stuff and it's like okay we could have had one more arm to take his place right now say edwin diaz goes down and they've relied on him heavily in those in safe situations he's the only guy right who who would take over for him? Who would be the guy? Would it be Trevor May? I don't know. Lugo. We don't know what kind of Trevor May we're going to get back. Would it be Seth Lugo? We've seen yeah. him ride the waves this year. So realistically, I don't know who their second guy would be. And that is scary for Mets fans because that is such a huge part of the end of this season and, of course, the postseason. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Look, ottavino has been – you know, the most consistent reliever not named Edwin Diaz on this team, but I would almost lean Lugo, you know, if if Diaz went down just because he's been here for so long, he's been in high leverage situations. He's done everything from, you know, the eighth inning to long relief to starting to closing at times when Familia Mm -hmm. was down. So, but, but that's, you know, the fact that you have to run through those options and then it's not just David Robertson. That's concerning. That's concerning. And, and, you know, before we get to the rest of the trades in baseball and Tyler, I'm going to hand it over to you to, lead us into Soto after I ask Anthony this next question. We talked about the psychological effects of hitting when DeGrom's on the bump and how the lineup tonight looked like, you know, last year they actually scored for him. He was seven and two when he went down, but it looked like 2020, 2019, 2018. What about the psychological effects of the trade deadline? Because at the end of the day, and you addressed this last episode, you know, when you referred to, uh, I, I forgot who we were talking about, maybe Vientos as an asset, right? But at the end of the day, you guys are human. And you guys hear, you know, all the same rumors. Most of you guys are on Twitter. You see the reports. And, you know, we saw it with the Red Sox yesterday and the, the human element when Vasquez got dealt to the Astros and JD being like, I just want this to be over with already, right? So, you know, from a Mets perspective, not that anyone was necessarily worried about being sold, although JD was, of course, packaged to San Fran. But do you think that there was a bit of a psychological letdown that the Mets didn't go get that Wilson Contreras, that J.D. Martinez for the guys who were here and who knew that they would be here for the the October run? I don't think so. Just because, I mean, look, I can't put myself into this clubhouse, but I can put myself into other clubhouses that I've been a part of, um, you know, and we never felt like we needed something. Now, when we got something that was great, 2015, bright new shiny toys, Joanna Cespedes, Kelly Johnson, Juan Uribe, Tyler Clippard, uh, Addison Reed, you can go on and on. I mean, it was like 
Christmas. Woo. Like, and, <laughs> and it felt, it was, it was confidence building because it was like, okay, our front office believes in us. We're going to go for this. But we were a team that was hovering, you know, 10 games above 500. You know, we, we hadn't taken off yet. We hadn't found our stride because offensively we weren't the team that we became uh, down that stretch. So that's, that was the piece we needed. We got it and we took off and that gave us confidence just knowing that the front office had the confidence in us to go and do that. Well, I think there's something to be said about not making moves and the front office saying, we believe in you guys. We believe in what we have. Okay. We made a couple of moves. We needed a DH. We did that. We, we got an arm. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll put him in the, in, in the bullpen. He's not the high leverage, big ninth inning guy, but he is a, a guy we, we trust in. And we got a fourth outfielder. But we believe in what we have in this clubhouse. And I think there's something to say to that where, uh, you know, from a mental perspective, you can tell yourself, okay, yeah, our front office said we're good enough because we already know we're in the playoffs. I mean, we're in the playoff hunt. We're, I mean, I think 100% on fan graphs, it says the Mets are going to make the playoffs at <laughs> yeah. 99.9, whatever it is. Um, so realistically, like, you know, we know we're good enough to be in the playoffs and that we're going to be there. So obviously our front office knows that we're good enough to go and go out there and perform at a certain level. And to go back just quickly to the valuations of, of trading guys and, and what it comes down to for this front office, because they did say that if, felt like some of the values were too high. And I think it goes to prove it. I think, I think one of you guys might've mentioned this, but the fact that Contreras and, and JD Martinez, two guys who were, you know, rumored to be targets or potential targets in the Mets, they're still at home with their teams because it was, there's a good chance that their valuation by those clubs was a little bit too high. And every club in major league baseball felt that way and said, yeah, I, I think that's a little bit too much. And you can't blame the Mets for that, even though it seemed like they were even a little bit less willing than others to give up prospects. Um, they clearly said to themselves, we are not going to overpay for anybody. And I, I respect that because sticking to your guns like that now has huge payoffs down the road. And that's not something fans want to hear. They want to they want this team to go to the World Series, win the World Series this year. I get it. My kids are like that. They want, 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 want. But sometimes <laughs> it's okay to, to wait it out, see what happens. This team is really good. They just got Jake back. They still have the potential to get themselves in the conversation of being the best team in the National League and, of course, going on to the World Series. So realistically, job done, see what happens in the playoffs. And now in the next five years, they're going to have assets to either move or assets coming up from the minor league system. And it's going to be a whole different ballgame where they can be the Padres making a move for a Juan Soto, or they can be the Dodgers last year making a move for Scherzer and Turner. They can be one of those teams that has all those assets that they can move around and still feel good about what they have in the minor leagues, but also obviously complement whatever they've got going on that season. Yeah, I mean, I think you just hit everything on the head. You know, the reason that I asked you about, you know, potentially being psyched out and if the team was a little you know, down or maybe out of it because they didn't get that big guy is because what you mentioned in 2015, that was my first year working for the Mets. And, yep. you know, to get to my post before the game, I would always walk through the bullpen. And when I was walking through, first off, I was walking, you know, right into through the parking lot when the Cespedes news broke, because that broke a little after the deadline had actually passed. I think mm -hmm. it was 10 minutes later. And so then walking into the stadium through the tunnel and through the bullpen, I'm looking at Familia. And Robles, I'm sure you remember those two were Robles was like a barnacle on Jurius's boat. I mean, they were always together. And I'm walking through the bullpen and the two of them and Carlos Torres and Bartolo Colon are just I mean, they were always in a good mood. But these guys are just smiling, laughing, 
And it's yeah. like, all right, we, we got our guy. And so it was kind yep. of because I saw the effect that, you know, it had obviously going into that national series. We were three games back, ended up sweeping them there and being tied and the rest is history. But I saw the positive effect it had on you guys in 2015. So I was kind of wondering if there was, you know, a, a conversely a negative effect after after today's inaction. But Tyler, you know, there was a lot of big news today for the rest of the league, man. Take us into soda. Yeah, uh, well, I received a text around 8.30 a.m. Eastern today from someone that I know that's very connected. And he said, all right, I'll tell you something. Don't tell anyone yet. Soto's a lock to San Diego. I'm like, okay, all right. And rest assured, less than a half hour later, the first official report came out that, yes, Soto's looking like he's going to go to San Diego. So, I mean, I, this felt like something that looked like a strong possibility for a while. The Padres, the Cardinals, the Dodgers. There was that natural concern where is this going to be deja vu from last year's trade deadline, right? Preller thinks he has Scherzer, but no, the veto, and he ends up going to the Dodgers, right? But for Padres fans, they get their guy, and man, oh, man, all I got to say is how impressed I am with what A.J. Preller was able to do. Yes, is he a madman? Did he go all in 1,000%, but I respect it. They get Josh Hader the day before. They get Juan Soto just casually, you know, arguably the best player in baseball. Uh, Tatis is starting to rehab assignment this weekend and they got Josh Bell as a throw in in this deal, which I just felt so crazy. So that makes sense. I was wondering why Bell wasn't potentially going to the Astros and they got Trey Mancini. So there, there answers my question. He was in negotiations to be a throw in there. So yeah, a lot of assets went the other way for the Padres. It was led by Mackenzie Gore, who I know has been dealing with an ailment, a real young stud of Southpaw that I'm sure will be a thorn in the Mets side at times if they don't get their act together against lefties to begin with. But then you have a bunch of nice, really young prospects, outfield-wise, pitching-wise. Some of these kids are from the Maryland area, too, so I think that was most enticing for Rizzo. I think he wants some guys that potentially actually have interest and want to be locked up long-term, being from the area. Maybe they grew up Nationals fans, whatever it may be. But this was just a phenomenal move for the Padres. And for us Mets fans, I mean, okay, get ready. It's going to be a battle of you know offense, I think, versus pitching to an extent. Maybe this is an NLCS preview. The Padres had the Mets a number during the season. Next time they can only match up is in playoffs. So I'm really excited to see what San Diego is going to do, give the Dodgers a run for their money in the NL West. But, I mean, I'm not that surprised by the move. I'm just kind of like, wow, what actually happened. To see Soto and Tatis together, two of the biggest young phenoms in baseball, I think it's great for the game. I think Soto's going to have an absolute blast, and I think Soto's numbers are going to be absolutely ridiculous knowing how protected he is. I look at the entire MLB, and I'm sorry. I don't see a better core four right now. I would even go as far as to say that I think that the Padres have a better core four than the Dodgers. When you have Machado, when you have Tatis, when you have Soto, you have Bell, it's really hard to argue that another team has something better than that as their core. Depth-wise, you know, they're still a little bit lacking towards the bottom of the line, but they just they bolster things to a degree that was ridiculous. And to throw a little cherry on top, they added Brandy Drury by parting ways with a top 11 prospect today. Was their number seven or six when they trade him? That was, you know, after the Soto deal. So they get Drury, 20 bombs on the year already, you know, over 50 RBIs. That's going to be in that D8 slash Ben spot based on matchups. I would have loved Drury to rekindle his relationship with the Mets, but it seemed obvious that Drury wasn't, um, pardon me, not Drury, but rather Epler wasn't interested in acquiring a Brandon Drury type, even with his versatility at third base, knowing that he wouldn't be playing every day. It seemed like the Mets just simply did not want to do that for a rental period. I understand that. But yeah, Padres and the Yanks, they are my two big, big winners from this year's trade deadline, just overall trade moves. So, Rec, what was your initial reaction to Soto being dealt and um, the other moves that have happened so far in baseball that we saw? Soto uh, going to the Padres was uh, 
It was incredible. I, I didn't think he would get dealt. I really did not believe that there was going to be yeah. a big enough haul. Sure enough, seeing that the haul that San Diego gave up, I can honestly say that that's a big enough haul. I mean, the prospects that they gave up, uh, whether it's C.J. Abrams or um, I, I, you can go on and on, Mackenzie Gore and and was Hassel and I mean, it's really really impressive the amount of talent that they had and the amount of talent that Washington got for Soto, and that's a little bit scary, uh, you know, as as someone covering the Mets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as far as a couple years down the road because a lot of those guys are knocking on the door and they're very close to the big league. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly the Nationals are able to recover from uh, all the trades they made over the last couple of years and and see what happens now with them. But for San Diego, I mean, just so happy for them. Bob Melvin, their manager, I played for him. He was my first big league manager. Love the guy. Um, Very excited to see what he can do out there uh, with that lineup, with all that talent. They've got starting pitching. They've had it for days. They they gave up one of their guys in Mackenzie Gore, but – um, you know, they, they, it's a good team. They don't have to me that number one type. Well, I shouldn't say that Joe Musgrove has been that number one type guy. You Darvish has been hit or miss this year. Uh, you know, they are getting, uh, you know, or I'm sorry, they do have uh, Blake Snell and, and others, Nick Martinez and, and other guys in that, that rotation that I do like. So I really like where they're at that bullpen being reinforced by Hader is incredible. Uh, you could argue that the Padres easily got the two best players traded in maybe three because Josh Bell would be right up there with the numbers he's putting up this year. Um, and what they were able to do at this trade deadline is just incredible. And I really do think that Brandon Drury was a huge get for them, especially after they basically ended up having to let go of Hosmer because they couldn't bring him back again now after basically trading him for a second time and it not working out and then uh, ending up giving him basically giving him to Boston. But then they end up having to include Voight in that deal, uh, you know, to the Nationals. So it's like, OK, wow, you're, you just lost out on two bats. But then they bring Brandon Drury in. That was a huge get for them. Really lengthen that lineup. I think they're extremely athletic team. They have a lot of versatility. They're going to be able to move pieces around. Uh, but realistically, that lineup, like you said, that top four, top five, that'll rival anything in baseball right now. And that's really impressive to say, considering what we were saying about that team just a week ago. Okay, Machado, and then what? 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 What are you gonna? What are you gonna do for me? And they've really done a nice job of giving themselves themselves an opportunity. Um, you know, outside of them, I think the Yankees made some really nice moves. I was a little bit confused by the Jordan Montgomery move. I know that they were starting to get a little bit heavy in the starting pitching, but you can never have enough. And that guy, even though he hasn't been as good of late and the Mets obviously beat him up a little bit, uh, he's been so good this year. He's been so consistent for the most part, um, you know, up until this recent stretch. I I just thought that was an interesting give. I do like Harrison Bader coming back for them. That's a nice move. They needed a center fielder. They get a really good center fielder, um, maybe the best defensive center fielder in the game, if not one of the best defensive center fielders in the game. And a guy who has offensive potential, just hasn't quite reached it yet, strikes out a lot. Uh, so I love what they did. There are some other moves around the game, though. You talk about the Jays getting a Whit Merrifield. I mean, I didn't see that coming at all. Didn't even hear that his was, name. That was like the, his fi- the final minute. The guy's not vaccinated. It just got thrown in there. What, who, I mean, do you remember uh, yeah, what went the other way? Do, do we uh, well, I don't think it was anything notable that went to Kansas City. Okay, it, it because- wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a big prospect. And and Whit Merrifield is one of those guys who comes in and is a leader in the clubhouse. That team needed some, you know, veteran leadership guys who are kind of hard nosed. They have a lot of young guys. They had one guy on the position player on their entire roster 
over the age of 30. Yep. Now you bring in a Whit Merrifield with all of his experience, everything he's been through. He's been in Kansas City now for plenty of years, uh, been through the good times and obviously a lot of the bad. So really nice to see him end up over there and, and getting a chance to uh, you know, make the playoffs potentially for the first time with that Serrano team now. Um, they're they're looking pretty good. I thought they could have used some more starting pitching. They didn't quite weren't quite able to to get that done. Um, I thought the the moves, you know, in in division with the Phillies and Braves, I like what those teams did. Um, they certainly got better, but I wouldn't say they made any you know grand uh, additions that are, are going to scare me as a, as a Met fan. So it, it really does come down to that San Diego team and, and the Yankees. I think as far as adding talent that I just I really feel like can really push them over the top. I mean, Frankie Montas is, he's a number two. I mean, he really is a legitimate number two behind Garrett Cole. And you put him in there and hope Severino can pitch to a level that, you know, he has in the past. And then of course, you you know, you've got Jamison Tyone, who's been up and down, bad start today. Uh, But, you know, he can go out there and give you some, some good innings. Nestor Cortez has been pretty great for them most of the year. He's had a couple of hiccups, but for the most part, he's been very good. So they look like they're really good in really good shape as well. It's going to be a a really fun playoff stretch down the, you know, down the stretch. It is interesting that teams like San Francisco, like Boston that were kind of on the fringe, they just decided to up and sell. So realistically it, it lowered some of the um, took out some teams that you thought could be potential playoff teams, but um, it's still going to be a fun race and I'm really excited to see what happens. Yeah, although, I mean, for the Sox, it's like, I mean, they, they went totally bipolar because they sold Vasquez, who would be such an important part of that team if they were going to make a push. But then they added guys like Tommy Pham and Eric Hosmer, but then they didn't upgrade their pitching at all. And Big that, character that's guy. what needed to be upgraded if they were going to make a run. Their pitching's abysmal. So it's like... Well, yeah, Hosmer was know. given to them. Hosmer was given to them. And Pham, yeah. they got for basically nothing, too. So I don't, I don't see those really even as, like... Um, they were, they're not big additions and certainly they almost feel like just a, well, we don't want to, we don't want to kill our fan base. So we'll just make it seem like we're still trying, even though they didn't get any pitching and that's exactly what they needed. And then you got Reese McGuire, of course, the, uh, the parking lot player. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I I know you didn't want to go there. I'll come back and catch. I can, I can still do it. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Um, you know, let's yeah, talk. We, we, wait, we, wait, we, Joe. I'm sorry. Before we go yeah. forward, I just want to ask um, everyone's opinions here, especially with you, Rick, about you know seeing now Noah and Zach Wheeler. They're back together in Philly, and naturally, I'm not someone that is overly concerned as a Mets fan with how they match up with the Phillies down the stretch. However, it's just so nuts to me. Again, if you would have told me as a 2015 diehard New York Mets fan of these two would be in a Phillies uniform. I, I would have had a heart attack on site. So thankfully time has definitely progressed since then. But for you guys, what's your reaction? You know, it's kind of, for me, at least it's just a little nuts because Wheeler was someone who truly felt like he would not have left Queens. If Steve Cohen bought the team a year earlier, unfortunately for the Mets case, that just did not happen. But now um, you see Thor as well, who left. He got swayed by the front office of the Angels you saw there because the Mets had nothing. They didn't have Billy Upper. They didn't have Buck Showalter. Goes out to L.A. Now he's already back in the NL East after, you know, kind of looking like he was ducking the Mets in that Anaheim series. You know, if you know, you know. But I'm very interested to see how Noah's going to do down the stretch of Philly's uniform. And I'm really curious to see what your guys' opinions are on that. Yeah, I think for me, I'm I'm interested to see how he does. I'm interested to see how he reacts to he's going to pitch against the Mets now. There's there's going to be a, at least a matchup or two, so that'll be oh, fun yeah. to see. Um, I think the Phillies look. I'm not going to say they made great moves. 
because I don't know what you're going to get in Noah Syndergaard. He's been very Jekyll and Hyde so far this year. He's had some great starts. He's had some very, very poor starts. Um, I do like the addition of Brandon Marsh. Uh, I like the fact that they finally have a center fielder. Uh, David Robertson is a nice ad for them. That's an interesting team because they, they should be getting Bryce Harper back sometime in the next, you know, three, four weeks or so. He took the cast off. He's going to be uh, starting to, you know, get ramping up pretty soon. He, he should be back certainly by September. So that team starts to take a different shape when hit with him back in the lineup uh, with the additions that they made. If Noah can come through and if Robertson is, is good in the back and that back end of that bullpen can continue to pitch the way that they have. Uh, it's going to be interesting. I don't, I'm not saying they're going to make a run at the division. They're, they're too far out right now, but I still think they can cause some damage in the NL, especially with teams like the Cardinals, not really doing a ton to sure up their pitching. I know they got Jordan Montgomery, but they still needed an ace. They needed that, that frontline guy. Um, you know, you heard a little bit about Carlos Rodon. Would he actually get traded? I, I didn't think he would. And sure enough, he didn't. Um, but he would have made a ton of sense for the St. Louis Cardinals just with their need and, and needing that frontline guy. Um, that could have put them over the top. But realistically, I think the Phillies have a really good shot at I, I hadn't said it until now, but this is the first time I'm going to say it. I think they have a really good shot at making the playoffs. And if they do with their starting rotation with Wheeler, with Nola, who the Mets have hit well against, uh, you know, pretty much uh, statistically in their in their history against him. But uh, I think and Gibson and then potentially Syndergaard, if, if he's good, if he can. You know, if he's still pitching then, I don't know what his pitch limit is, if he has an innings innings limit or anything like that. But I think they're a da more dangerous team than people give him credit for because that, that bullpen has been better. And if they get Harper back, I mean, that's an MVP-level guy. The way Hoskins has been swinging it, the way Alec Bohm's been swinging it, that team looks a little bit more dangerous. It's going to be interesting to see. It makes the NL just a lot more competitive than it, it had been shaping up to be because realistically it looked like there was four teams now it looks like there could be six because I, I was taking San Diego semi-seriously. Now they might, I mean, they might be the favorite. I don't even know. It's crazy. So the NL is going to be a whole lot of fun down the stretch. I, I think, Tyler, for me, what happened with Noah is this happened. <laughs> he saw that I followed him from New York to uh, to the West Coast. Yeah, Joe literally like, texted me like, I want to rekindle this photo again. <laughs> yeah. Well, Anthony, yeah. The, the context there, and I think we were talking about that when it happened. I know you hadn't joined the show yet. But I met Noah, first time I met him was 2013 when I was, what, a 15-year-old a kid at the Fan Fest going into the All-Star Game at City Field uh, mm -hmm. at the Javits Center in Manhattan. He was there. He was in the minors at the time, I believe, with Double A. And yep. uh, I met him. And then what happened was Facebook was like, oh, look uh, what happened nine years ago today. And I went to tweet that picture because I you know, looked like a, a baby. I was 15 going on nine. And so I went to tweet that picture. And then as I tag him in it, I see that Noah Syndergaard just tweeted, hey, join me at Santa Monica. I'm at the uh, Capital One Cafe. I live 10 minutes from there. And I was like, nine years to the day, I have to go recreate this picture. Got to do it. Got to do it. Even though personally, I'm not a fan. I was like, I have to go recreate this picture. Oh, I got to awesome. say, I, I, I expect a, a little more uh, personality out of the guy, considering you know who he is on Twitter, meeting him in person. Again, you know, obviously I was starstruck when I was 15, but now as an adult, just like chatting it up with him, I was like, wow, a little disappointed. Also, people in California, there was no line. It's unreal. Like I just walked in and he was standing there alone and I just went right up to him. And oh, I was no. like, this, like in New York, there'd be, you know, three, four blocks wrapped around of people out yep. here. It was just like he, he was just he was only there for an hour and there was no line at That's all. Crazy. It was crazy. 
it was insane. But yeah, That's that move doesn't really. It's a oh. different. It's a different market. It's yeah. a different yeah. market. Yeah, man, totally. Uh, especially when you're dealing with an angel in Los Angeles. I mean, maybe if it was Kershaw, there'd be you know people there. But yeah, different. It's wild, man. But as far as him being a Philly, doesn't really scare me all that much. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm dying to face him personally. Like for the Mets, I, you know, I was supposed to see him on Sunday night baseball. Obviously we all know what happened there. That didn't pan out. Is he going to uh, match up next, um, next weekend? When I mean, if it's Friday, I know we're getting Scherzer, Tyler, you and I are going to be there Friday the 12th. We're getting That's Scherzer. The goal. Yeah. So Scherzer Syndergaard, that'll make, make for some, uh, Friday night sparks in those black unis, but it's going to depend on where they slot them in. But how about the fact that they also DFA would familiar, which is kind of funny because it all plays comes together. Oh, there. Oh, how, how about that? I was thinking heart right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love Drew. You know, so I mentioned that when I was working there, I'd walk through the bullpen every day. And Familia, like, it got to the point where we would talk every single day. So he was definitely the guy I talked to the most personally. I, I love it, but he's just not having a good year. I don't no. know. Yeah, and he's been really bad of late. Really bad yeah. of late. So yeah, I mean, but but I do, I do, and will forever have a soft spot uh, for Jurius. That's that's for certain. But yeah, Syndergaard, that move doesn't scare me. If anything, Brandon Marsh. I think that was a very underrated move. Kind of weird that they didn't happen together. Two separate trades between the Phillies and the Angels today. Uh, but Marsh is a guy who took the Mets deep a couple times. I saw him, you know, at a front row seat to a 450-foot bomb off McGill in that Friday night Mets-Angels game. Uh, you know, we were talking about it before we started recording a little bit. I think if he shortens up his stroke a dash, he's going to be really dangerous because he's got gap-to-gap power. Uh, his swing is just a little long. And he's got a pretty good glove, and he's fast as hell on top of it. So I think I think he's a pretty good player, Anthony. I don't know how much of him you've seen, but what are your initial thoughts on that deal? I got to play against him a little bit in AAA oh. in 2018, and and this kid, I mean, he's a very good player. Uh, at the time, he did have that long swing. He still does. You can get up on him. You can get up and in on him, um, and it makes him vulnerable to some stuff down below the zone. Then also. Uh, so look, he, he still has those holes, but you're right. I mean, he, the power hasn't really shown in the big leagues, at least not to, to a consistent level. He has power. He can hit the ball a long way, but he just doesn't make contact enough and make quality contact quite enough. Um, but he certainly has the ability. He's got speed. He's very good defensive center fielder. Uh, I believe he is, uh, has seven defensive runs saved, uh, plus oh, seven defensive oh, runs saved so far this season, oh. um, and just as a center fielder. So, uh, cause he's had to play out there a lot with trout, you know, not being available. So this guy can play out there and it's definitely something, um, it's an upgrade for, for Philly big time defensively because Odubel out there wasn't doing it. Veerling, you know, look, he could play a little defense, but he certainly was not hitting uh, worth anything. So they, they made some upgrades. And and whether they are complementary type, you know, kind of fringe upgrades or bit major upgrades, those will be yet to be seen because it depends on how Robertson fits in and it depends on if Syndergaard can kind of do his thing. But Marsh, I, I do agree. I think that's a sneaky good ad and, and a good ad for Philly. Um, but again, like you said, it doesn't really scare me as a Mets fan. I think this team, this New York Mets team, is still a better and and more quality team than that Philly team is. When Bryce comes back, it is going to be fun. Those are going to be if you know if there's some matchups there in September. Those are going to be fun matchups. You know whether Al, you know um, Alvarado, uh, Alvarado, I'm sorry, comes in the comes in from the bullpen throwing a hundred at Met at the at the Mets hitters or or what. It'll be interesting yeah. to see. But I, I do really like uh, those matchups are going to be fun for sure. Yeah, look, it, it's good for baseball when those two teams are good, right? Because yeah. Mets-Phillies is not far off from Yankees-Red Sox, especially as of late, you know, in recent years. 
And uh, so if both of those teams are in playoff position, you know, I was doing some radio hits yesterday and I said it on ESPN State College out in Pennsylvania. I said, you know, the NL East is going to have three playoff teams. And I'm really confident in that. And so even though I agree with you a thousand percent, I think the Mets are better, even with our pretty dormant trade deadline. It's still going to make for some fun baseball. Last thing uh, before we dive into the Braves series, um, because we're talking Mets, obviously, because we're talking Angels right now, both of you guys, Anthony, you first, then Tyler, with the Mets holding Mark Vientos and Ronnie Mauricio, and with our you know incredible draft picks that we just had becoming trade eligible December 15th, how legitimate are we in terms of being players for Shohei Otani this winter? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I got you so You're excited. You're choking. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready for that. Um, <clears throat> wow. Uh, look, that would be a tremendous get, um, obviously, for, for a multitude of reasons. Seeing that guy in the New York market would be fantastic. Uh, seeing him, hopefully, you know, theoretically next year on in the in a playoff position to to get to the playoffs and have a chance to win um which i believe the mets will obviously still have an opportunity to do would be just outrageous uh just to think of that uh, he has what one more year left on his contract so basically it would be kind of a one year thing and you know kind of see what happens um obviously jake has the opt out which he's still planning on taking assuming the mets sign him back Pairing him up with Jake and Scherzer um, just as like a one, two, three. You're going to come out of incredible. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't think they have room for me on that roster, but I would absolutely come out of retirement. <laughs> um, but Otani, I mean, that would be a, an unbelievable uh, get for them. It would give them definitely the type of ammunition that you need to make a trade like that for sure. Um, they have arguably the number one prospect in baseball in Francisco Alvarez. I mean, you could talk about several other guys, but I mean, what I've seen from this guy offensively is incredible. I know defensively he still has some work, but he's can, he can throw. He's a catch and throw guy. He's still learning to handle the staff. He's still learning to move around back there. He, he does need to get a little bit more athletic in my opinion. Um, but you've got guys like Beatty, Mauricio, uh, like you said, Vientos, um, you could certainly see them putting together a very nice package for a guy like Otani. And realistically, if they got that done, I mean, you insert him into the middle of the lineup anywhere you want, and then you also have him pitching every fifth or sixth day. I, I couldn't even imagine what that would be like, uh, you know, as a, as a Met fan. That would be an incredible thing to watch and certainly something that I'm going to be dreaming about now because I hadn't really thought about it that much. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad that I can influence your dreams in some way, Anthony. That really means a lot. Tyler, what do you think, man? Because, you know, uh, you know, Anthony mentioned Alvarez and Beatty. I'm actually, and maybe this is too wishful, I'm thinking that those are the two guys that are untouchable. But with Vientos, Mauricio, Kevin Parada, the first uh, the first of our two first-round picks this year, um, maybe a Matt Allen, a Peterson, a McGill, who, you know, grew up an Angels fan. He's a SoCal guy. I'm thinking that, you know, for one year of Otani, I just rattled off six names that don't include Alvarez or Beatty that I think could get the job done. See, I think there's two sides of the coin when evaluating Otani and the potential here. There's, you know, side A, which is Billy Epler, who spent multiple years scouting Otani, leading up to him, of course, arriving with the Angels during Epler's time as GM there. But then you have the other side of the coin, and it's the obvious notion that Artie Marino, one of the biggest schmucks of owners in baseball, I will come out and say, I do not care if I get backlash, is someone that, of course, was against Steve Cohen becoming owner in New York. 
two, does still have his hands involved in decisions that the Angels make. Actually had a lot of deals that he helped intervene with on Billy Epper and push him to the side in Billy's first tenure as a GM in L.A. I have natural concerns with the Mets trying to do something like that with the Angels. Because one, I don't know where currently the Angels and say Epler stands on doing a potential deal with each other to that magnitude. How would Marino feel about it? Because again, everything goes through Artie. Unless he has a change of heart because the Mets just throw him every prospect knowing a man. I don't love that. I really don't. That's the biggest thing. I'm almost under the notion that as much as I would love Otani, it might be the safest route to just wait until he hits the free agent market. He's making it, he's made it abundantly clear. He's not re-signing with them unless they go on a miracle run next year. And if I'm going to go on a limb, I'm going to say that's probably not going to happen at this juncture. He's going to be free agent in the 2024 offseason. I would love Otani on the Mets, and he is 1,000% a generational talent that you give up an arm and a leg and everything else imaginable for, 100%. He's in that Juan Soto tier, even with being older than Soto. When you are Babe Ruth, but on steroids, yes, I want you on the New York Mets, 1,000%. You thrive in this market. However, I just think when you look at all the other aspects of Artie Marino, how he operates with the Angels, unless things change on that front itself, I feel like the Mets still may have themselves in a better position once he's a free agent. Because when you look at this upcoming offseason, you're not just going to potentially have Otani available. There are going to be other assets available out there, both the free agent and trade market. And there's one thing that the Mets are going to benefit most from, obviously, by not parting with any top prospects. It will be this offseason. They will dive in regardless on what they do. Either they're, you know, a first-round exit that they are in playoffs, or if they go on a deep run and have the shiny trophy, they're still going to make prominent acquisitions in this upcoming offseason. So it's going to be very interesting to see what they do. Again, I love Shohei. The thought of him, I mean, I, I can't go any further there without just actually going crazy thinking about it. But yeah, keep yeah. keep keep it in your pants, Tyler. Yeah, I will I will try my best. But for right now, let's just let's just keep things as is. Let's focus about the fact that we're not even 24 hours removed from the trade deadline and get into uh the re- remainder of the season. Yeah, well, let's, let's not wrap- let's not also forget. Sorry, sorry, Joe. No. Um, let's not also forget if you do make a move like that, four, five type prospects for a guy like Shohei Otani for one year, the, there's more risk involved in a guy like Shohei Otani than others because if his if something goes out, you know, if he takes a swing similar to what Jake did last year, all of a sudden. He's not just down as a hitter. He could be down as a pitcher too. You don't know. You might lose him both ways. And then what? You just gave up all those prospects for what you thought was going to be a guy who could impact you on both sides of the ball. And now you're getting nothing. So that's one thing that you got to be very wary of when you talk about a guy like that. You want to think about the positives. And, and I did. And that was my first reaction. But as Tyler was talking there, I was thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. What if he gets hurt? and He can't do either of those things. What's going to happen? Because then you just mortgaged part of your future for literally for nothing, for one year of nothing. And that could be a really tough pill to swallow. So that goes along with what Tyler was saying about potentially just waiting at least until free agency, because then with we, which we've seen with the Mets, it's just money after that. And they don't mind spending some money and maybe, you know, forfeiting a season of Otani if they can get him back later, uh, you know, and they have, have him on a longer term deal. Boy, that's nice to hear. The Mets don't mind spending money. It's uh, <laughs> that's a breath of fresh air. I was missing for my first twenty-two years. Yeah, I will say though, similarly to Francisco Lindor, I don't think that a deal with Otani uh, gets done unless there's prior discussions about all right, you know, if this trade happens, he's going to sign a long term, or at least in his case, maybe a medium term extension. But I, I think that would absolutely have to come with a trade if you're going to, you know, quite literally send the farm to yeah. uh, to the Angels for him. Look, before we wrap up the show. We have a playoff-esque series. 
this weekend. The Braves are coming to town for a five-game set. I'd say a rare five-game set, but this year with the late start to the season, there's been quite a few of them. The pitching matchups in this series. I mean, it's like you look at the guys the Braves are running out there. Unfortunately, the one guy we missed, and he's been pretty good for Atlanta, but the Mets own him, is Charlie Morton. So when you look at Thursday, you got Kyle Wright versus Cookie, who's been, you know, I, I said in July, should be the NL Pitcher of the Month, had a sub-1 ERA. Friday, you've got Ian Anderson, who, despite having an ERA of five on the season, has a really good record and also dominates the Mets. Mets are, current Mets hitters just eight for 61 off Anderson. That's a buck 30 average. He's going up against Taiwan Walker, who had an all-star caliber first half. Saturday, you've got Max Squared, Scherzer versus Freed. And then nothing official for game two of the doubleheader, but my gut's telling me it's Oda Rizzi versus a combination of David Peterson and Trevor Williams. And then Sunday. Spencer Strider versus Jacob deGrom. Uh, two guys who, you know, of course, started the year in the minors and have been absolutely sensational ever since. Uh, Anthony, looking at this series, man, playoff atmosphere, playoff vibe to it. What, what's the biggest thing you're looking for? Uh, I think for me, it's just knowing that you're going to get the best of both of these teams. You've got the the Braves coming to town. They're still playing great baseball, even though the Mets, you know, kind of took it to them uh what was that a week ago two weeks ago when they played last but um I, I think this this Braves team and this this Mets team both playing good baseball right now it's just going to be a lot of fun to watch these two duke it out knowing what's on the line and realistically I think this division if the Mets are going to win it they don't need to go come out here and sweep the series they don't need to come out and take you know I know they have nine games with the Braves over the next couple of weeks so they don't need to come out here and win all nine of those games they just need to come out and kind of split because realistically the Braves have a much tougher set in, in September and that's going to be a harder schedule for them. So it's really on the Braves to come out if, if they're wanting or if they, they feel like they are potentially division winners to come out here and really establish their dominance. dominance. So to me, it's going to come down to can this offense, can the Mets offense kind of impose their will again on this Braves pitching staff, make them work, get into that bullpen and see what happens from there. Because in a five game set, we used to talk about this all the time in Oakland. Every time we come into a series, get into the bullpen, kick, you know, beat the, beat the crap out of the bullpen. And then that team moves on to their next series. And now they're, they basically are down a man or two because they don't have as many guys or they've, they've, they're tired. They've thrown a lot of innings and that makes them weaker throughout the rest of the season. So your division opponents, that's how you end up winning the division long-term. Well, the Mets can do serious damage in this five-game set because the Braves have guys that don't necessarily go that deep into games. Although Strider went six and two-thirds today, he's very liable to go 100 pitches in five innings and be out of there. Ian Anderson hasn't been good this year. Even though he's been great against the Mets in his career, you can get him out in three, four innings. And if they're able to do that to some of those guys – that becomes a completely different series. You get into that bullpen. You wear them down. Their new shiny toy, Rysel Iglesias, he hasn't looked all that great all year for the most part. It'd be interesting to see what he looks like. Really get into that bullpen, wear them down, and then that'll affect them for that next series when the Mets play them for another four, not that far down the road. That To me, that's the biggest thing. This, this offense, doing what they did last time, really working their those brave starters and just getting into that bullpen, I'm really looking forward to see what they're able to do. Are they able to score runs? Are they able to, um, you know, just really make those guys work the way that they were last time? And then ultimately, look, if they win three out of two, fantastic. But oh, yeah. I'm not really worried about that as much as I am just wearing that that team down, that Braves team down. Absolutely. Tyler, man, what do you have to add to that? 
I have to add, it's I'm excited to see how the new Mets are going to do now in this rivalry. Daniel Volgeback, I think he's going to get a lot of playing time in this matchup for one. I think he's going to do really well. You know, he's a guy that grinds out at bats so well. You think that the Mets already have enough, the McCann, the Nimmos, and the Cannas of the world. No, they add Vogelback. He might be upwards of 300 pounds, but this guy's a phenomenal at the plate. I love Bubba. But then you have Darren Ruff. I think him matching up against Max Freed is going to be exciting too. He's finally going to be put to the test early here for the Mets against a big southpaw in this rivalry. So I'm looking at the new guys. I'm even looking at Tyler Naquin. He's probably going to get a good amount of playing time in this one, a five-game set. Marcana at most is going to start in three of these games. It's all going to be indicative on matchup, but Buck loves his versatility. That's where it's going to come in key. Mets depth in this series should be the biggest X factor, if not truly one of them, along with some great pitching that they hopefully get from their entirety of the rotation. And then Spencer Strider versus a Mac, uh, Jacob DeGrom, as we previously discussed a little bit, that's going to be an awesome matchup. I cannot wait. Look, the Mets did well against Strider last time as they did against Freed. And then, you know, the Kyle Wright is the interesting one for me as well, just because the Mets haven't really seen him too much. Um, but when I look at evaluating all these matchups, Jake Odorizzi, too, he's a guy that gives up the long ball, try to knock off a couple off of him. And overall, I'm not just looking at this series as a five-game set. I'm looking at this again as five of nine, because the Mets match up against the Braves nine times in a two-week span. For me personally, biasly as a Mets fan, I truly hope that they can come out and make a statement by winning upwards of six out of these nine games. Maybe that's a tall task. We'll soon find out especially at home in City Field. I'm really happy that the five-game set is, in fact, in Queens. It's going to be a playoff atmosphere every single game from Thursday all the way to Sunday. And again, I cannot emphasize this enough. I really think the Mets' depth is going to be unbelievably crucial and key to help them with their success in these five games. Yeah, look, Tyler, I mean, I'm with you. Six wins would be great. Nine wins would be great, obviously. Uh, but I I'm really looking at this like go win five out of nine because – you know, we're, we're not the desperate team. We're not the team chasing them. You know, we're yep. the team that's got the three-game lead, I believe, two and a half, but I always look at the loss column. We're up three in the loss column. That's and, right, loss column. Yeah, exactly, man. It, it's, you know, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't get into the half-game stuff. It's how many more losses or how fewer losses do you have? And uh, so we got a three-game lead in that respect and, you know, play slightly above 500, take five out of nine here. You're in really, really good shape. And the key to doing that, Anthony, it's exactly what you said, and it's exactly what they did the last time they played the Braves. It's knock starters out, get into the bullpen. You know, Tyler, when we did that show previewing the Mets-Braves series, I, I had said, you know, try to knock these guys out early because the Mets have been doing that all year, whether they're scoring or not. You know, Nimmo is starting games with 10-pitch ABs. It's a beautiful thing to see. And, Tyler, you kind of went, went opposite of me and said, well, the Braves have the best bullpen in baseball. And, you know, truthfully, I said it then, I'll say it now. It's like, that's something I don't really care about because all you need is one reliever to have an off night and, you know, a whole inning can be blown open. And then you get a guy rushing to get ready, come in the game. He's not fully warmed up. So, you know, knock Strider out, knock Freed out. You don't need to score, you know, more than maybe two, three runs off him, but just get him out after five, get into the pen. And in a playoff type series like this, that'll do you wonders. And we saw it, Anthony, to your point, the last time the Mets played the Braves, Braves were the hottest team in baseball going into that series. Well, they looked a little mediocre after that yeah. Mets series. And so, you know, the long-lasting after effects, which I didn't even think of until you said it, those are definitely huge. And, you know, these games are important. Don't let anyone tell you, well, you know, they're just as every game is equal. No, no, no. Every game is not uh, created equal. Because not only is this a divisional rival and a team that you have to play 19 times and obviously you want to win the division, but now it's like whoever doesn't win the division – is probably going to have to take on the Padres in that wild card round. That's a great point. Oh, and, my God. You know, yeah, the, the Padres' yeah. flurry of moves. We may be done with San Diego, 
But, you know, the way that the Mets play the Braves, not just could, will be the difference between potentially seeing the Padres, or rather, I would say, being guaranteed to see the Padres in that 4-5 matchup versus potentially seeing them in the NLCS. You know, it's funny. I actually, I want to stay put with this two seed. I want to keep winning games and stay put with this two seed because if you're the one seed, you're getting the winner of San Diego, Atlanta, most likely. And then, you know, you're getting the, the probably the Mets, right? If, if the Mets, or um, rather, if the Mets are the one seed, you're getting the Dodgers, Padres, Braves, two out of those three. It's like, I don't want to deal with that, right? I'd rather take on Milwaukee or Philly and then deal with either the Dodgers, Pods, or Braves, one of those three as opposed to two of those three. So, yeah, the Padres moves, that makes the NL East race a lot spicier. Yeah, no. Yeah, I'm, to your I'm, point, I'm, to your I'm, point, Joe, about the about the division and, and playing in division and these games mattering. Uh, you know, in 2015, those games in August and September with the Nationals were awfully fun, and that's what these Mets are going to get now with the Braves, and it's going to be really fun to watch. Um, and, and to your point also about you know what we talked about with making these guys work, I brought that up, and I brought up the fact that you know that was our philosophy in Oakland because Eric Chavez is the hitting coach for the Mets. That's where this came from. That's why this team is doing what they're doing this year and really making pitchers work. And it's been really fun to watch because that philosophy was something that was preached and preached and preached and pounded into you over there in Oakland. It wasn't taking pitches. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just trying to walk. It was making guys work, getting your pitch and making sure you were selectively aggressive is what we called it. You get a good pitch to hit, go for it. If it's the first pitch of the AB, that's fine but you're not going to swing until you get a good pitch to hit or you have two strikes because why, why would you give up your at bat anytime before that? And realistically that that's what Eric Chavez is doing over here. And that's what this team is doing. So we're going to see that play out over these nine games in the next two weeks. And it, I think it can have a really long lasting effect on this Atlanta team. If the Mets are able to successfully do it, that can hurt them down the stretch, uh, you know, as far as their bullpen and really just put them behind the eight ball. Before yeah, we wrap things up, Joe, I just want to ask real quick because obviously you grew up a, you grew up an A's fan, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, you started your career in the Oakland A's system. I want to know your opinion. You know, growing up, being fully aware of who Eric Chavez is and all the great things I did in his MLB career. But what your initial reaction was when the Mets brought him over from the Yanks in the same offseason, right? Which I thought was phenomenal, just from the outside looking in. But really seeing the impact that he has had on the Mets, and to what degree do you believe it's been so drastic? I I think he's had a tremendous effect. And I think that, look, I didn't just, you know, grow up an A's fan and I grew up an Eric Chavez fan, 100%. Loved the guy, loved the way he played the game. Gold Glover defense was a great hitter. Um, Injuries kind of cut short his career a little bit. Um, Almost David Wright-esque, but not to the Mm -hmm. same extent, of course. He wasn't quite that big a star, but still a great talent at third base. Um, But I was fortunate enough also, I ended up sharing the same agent as him. I ended up going over to his house, training at his house, training with him. Um, he was an awesome guy. He's a great, great human being. Uh, he loved to talk baseball. He loved, loves the game. Um, I ran into him in 2018. He was managing the, the AAA team for like a couple of weeks while they were going through some things with and their with big the Angels, managing right? and everything else with, yeah, when he was with the angels. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, so he was, he was the manager for salt Lake for a couple of games. We talked then, um, we've kept in touch, you know, here and there, but, uh, he's just a great person, and and I love what he's brought to this team. I know the guys respect him. I know that they, you know, they know what he did in his career. They know the type of hitter he was, and and he's he is like I said, he's kind of comes from that Oakland cloth where 
we're not just hitters. We're cerebral guys. We understand the game. We understand how to play it and understand how to play the game within the game to really go about trying to attack teams in, in different types of ways. Uh, because in Oakland, they can't spend all that money to go out and get people. So it's really about trying to find new and different ways to win. They've always been on the front line of that and the cutting edge of that. That's why they've been such a successful franchise over the years this year. Outstanding, of course, uh, that that happens occasionally with them. But um, I, I think he's had a, a profound effect on this lineup and these guys uh, just with putting the ball in play more with with, you know, with Pete, with Jeff McNeil, with you can talk about specific guys and, and the years that they're having. And I can attribute a lot of that success to Eric Chavez. Yeah, we're one of the five toughest teams to strike out in Major League Baseball. And Eric Chavez was one of the toughest guys to strike out when he was in the league. So all I was going to mm -hmm. say before um, Tyler chimed in with that awesome question was just that when you look at guys like Nimmo and Guillaume, right, they're the perfect embodiments of that Chavez philosophy that you were yep. saying he's brought over. The selective, you know, being selectively aggressive, fighting off, fighting off, fighting off, and then getting your pitch and driving it. Those two, I mean... You know, anytime they're up, it can be a 10 pitch at bat. And at the end of the day, when you turn one of those and it's like, even if you get out, it, you're doing your job. You're helping the team, helping get that starter out of there quicker. So, you know, it, it's just not every at bat is necessarily quote unquote successful, but a lot of productive at bats on this team. Gents, this has been our longest episode yet. A uh, lot to talk about today with the deadline, with DeGrom, of course, and a huge series coming up. Our next episode, we're going to take a bit of a break here because we went you know, back to back so quickly, Sunday to Tuesday. Our uh, next episode will be after the Braves series. So before we go, any closing remarks from either one of you? No, I, I would just say <laughs> that this was a phenomenal discussion. You know, we're like a buck 20 in this one. So I hope that everyone that chimed in, whether on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, Wordy NYM, or wherever you get your podcast, thank you guys so much. Your troopers make it all the way to the end here. Greatly appreciate it. Make sure to give us five-star rate review wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to check me out on the YouTube channel if you're liking the video version as well. Make sure to drop a comment down below what your biggest takeaway was from the Mets this trade deadline. Are you feeling okay about it? A little upset? However you're feeling and everything else that we discuss in today's pod, please don't hesitate from letting us know in the comments here on YouTube and, again, wherever you get your podcast. Check me out on Twitter at WordyNYM per usual. And, yeah, that's all I got. And really quick, I just saw some pretty upsetting news that I've got to break. Oh, I'm um, glad Vince, you brought that up. I meant to mention it. Yeah. Yeah. Vince Scully uh, just passed away at the age of 94. Uh, one of the all-time greats, you know, not only arguably the greatest broadcaster, greatest play-by-play -play man ever to live, but one of the greats just in the game of baseball. I mean, you know, went so far beyond, uh, you know, just his commentary. He was a great person. Everyone in, or in and around the sport loved him. Uh, whether you were a Dodger fan or not. Uh, so, you know, definitely a bummer. 94 years old, lived an amazing full life. Um, but yeah, Ben Scully, rest in peace. You were a trailblazer and a legend. And uh, Anthony, do you ever have any dealings with Scully or... Yeah, I mean, I got to meet him, of course, uh, out in L.A. Uh, tremendous, like you said, tremendous human being. I, I know a lot about what he's done in the community out there. He is just an awesome figure out there in LA, uh, through Justin Turner. Um, you know, I, I've, I've talked to him a little bit about it. Um, you know, Justin's done a lot of stuff out, out there in LA, but, but Vin was a, a big part of what inspired him to do some of those things. And, and just the, the, the life that guy lived and everything he's seen in the game, uh, you know, and been a part of with that Dodgers organization. Um, just how can you not 
love and respect someone like that and just everything that he's been through and um just an like you said awesome human being and and it won't be the same certainly uh you know going out there to la anymore and and not hearing his voice obviously he hasn't been doing the games for a couple years but um just a tremendous tremendous life that that man lived and and uh like you said rest in peace yeah been with him since 1955 since the brooklyn days so as a mets fan who you know would have been a brooklyn dodger fan had they never left who's grandpas were all big Brooklyn Dodger fans and loved Scully. It's, uh, you know, a lot of ties there for Vince and the older generations of Mets fans. So rest in peace, Vince Scully. That does it. Episode 11 of Believe in Queens with Tyler Ward, Wardy NYM, Anthony Recker. You can find him on socials and myself, Joe Serralo at the Joe Serralo on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll see you after the Brave set. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.